every great vision has ups and downs and way downs. And if you aren't personally committed and excited to seeing that happen in the world, every time there's a down or a way down, you're going to feel like jumping off the ship. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to product veteran and venture capitalist, Josh Elman, who is best known for his integral roles in designing, building, and scaling consumer products at Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Zazzle, just to name a few. And he is currently also a partner at prominent venture capital firm, Greylock Partners. In this week's episode, Josh talks about the early days of the dot-com era, his roles at LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, what it was like working with what are now the icons of the industry, what are the questions and qualities he looks in a founder before writing a check, and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Josh, for taking the time this morning. I'd like to start out by asking you, how did you get into technology and what was the transition like from working as a PM to becoming a venture capitalist? Well, those are actually two very different questions because the first one goes back to me as a kid getting into technology. My dad got us a computer when I was five years old. It was a VIC-20 and I love playing games on the computer and did a little bit of programming when I was a kid, but I decided it wasn't for me and was going to go to college and get into economics and East Asian studies, figuring the rise of China was going to be a a massive trend. And when I got to college was the very beginning of Netscape. It was like Netscape 0.7 and the web was just starting and I was like, this feels more like the future. And, you know, I'd been very computer savvy as a kid. I was still nerdy enough that I was one who had to do a bunch of stuff on the computer that other people didn't do. And I realized maybe this is actually the future that I should bet on. This is back in the mid nineties when I was in college. And at that point decided to go take my first programming class and learn how to program and realized that learning how to program was going to be a fundamental skill to help change technology over the next period of time. And that was kind of my switch where I went to economics class and was like, this looks like a lot of numbers that try to track the past and then are wrong about the future future versus computers, which were actually making the future. And that sort of led to my career. From then, I started as an engineer. My very first job was working on a thing called Real Player, which probably a lot of this audience won't remember anymore. But it used to be the combination of YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, every way that you found all your music on your computer and watched all video on the internet. And I thought, again, this is back in 1997 when I graduated from college, that putting audio and video on the internet was going to be a massive part of the future and wanted to go work at the company that was doing it. And I also want to move back up to Seattle, which is where I was from and wanted to kind of go be part of that revolution. It was a great company in Seattle. And I wanted to be an engineer to actually help build something and learn what it took to build it so that in a whole long future career in technology, I would understand what it took to build something. And so that was kind of how I got started in technology in my very first job. And from there, I've just transitioned over my whole career from being an individual engineer to running an engineering team where I wasn't coding as much anymore, but was kind of responsible for what a whole group was making to shifting to product management where I wasn't responsible for the coding anymore, but was responsible for the strategy and how we figured out what our users wanted and how we organized that into projects and how we actually got those things done to this point of venture capital where I'm responsible for finding and funding small teams that go figure out something they want to build for users and actually produce it and hopefully those turn into giant companies. So it's kind of been one continuum ever since I made that change in college to figure out how do we help get the future built better and faster. Very cool. You've worked at LinkedIn, at Facebook, at Twitter, all these companies. When did you join them? And you know, they ended up becoming one of a kind. So, so how did you know, you know this company you were working for was going to be the next big thing? 
you know, if you go back to my real network story, you know, I joined right out of college. It was a private company. It was called Progressive Networks at the time. And their vision was to put audio and video on the internet. And they had about 300 people in the company and just enough of a little early lead that you thought, man, this might be the company that does it. You know, and that's been my decision kind of factor, you know, for my entire career. So in 2004, I'd actually started business school, which I dropped out. I got very excited about social networking. And again, it was this very nascent idea of people putting themselves online, connecting to each other. But if they do that, they can send updates or search through who each other knows. You can really transform the way that the internet works. Now it's so obvious that social networking is a massive thing. But back then it was heavily debated, but I got very excited. And because I had done the same program at Stanford as Reed Hoffman, I sent a note into LinkedIn to say, hey, is there any work I could do for you guys? And they responded and it turned into a job when there were about 15 people. And again, I was just very excited about this idea of social networking taking over the world. You know, as I then progressed in my career, I joined, you know, LinkedIn. I loved it, but I was doing a bunch of HR and jobs board type work. And I realized that wasn't what I was as passionate about, you know, versus like working on audio video on the internet. So I moved on from LinkedIn probably way too early. It was only about 50 or 60 employees even when I left. But, you know, I, I kept being excited about social networking and I kept tracking and Facebook launched this platform in 2007. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the future of the consumer internet where every app, every product becomes social. How do I go work on a platform like that? And in early 2008, I got a chance to go join Facebook. It was about 500 people at the time, maybe 70 million monthly active users. And, and I believed it was going to be so much bigger. I believed it was going to be a $100 billion company, which is way beyond that. And, you know, found my way to get a job there and got to work on the platform. And that was an incredible run over a couple of years where we got to launch Facebook Connect, which is the sign in with Facebook button that appears in apps and websites that are not Facebook. But from there, I started getting really excited about Twitter. I said, this isn't just the future of connecting people, but it's the future of connecting information. And this might be the news channel that everybody tunes into every single day to find out what's going on in their world. And got to know those founders in over about six months from when I first met them to when I finally got an offer to join the company, you know, kind of just kept tracking and, and staying in touch. And I just believed Twitter was going to be massive. And by the time they were kind of ready to hire me as a product manager, it had grown from, I think, 20 people when I first met them in early 2009, like 80 people in the fall of 2009. But I just believed it could be maybe not quite as big as Facebook, but almost as big as Facebook, and perhaps even more important with its position of kind of news and content and the way that we tune into the world. And, you know, my career has just been these things that I believe could be much bigger, and I was attracted to join them. I was less focused on my role and my title and everything else. It's just, can I be part of something that I believe will be massive? You know, and in every case, I got to go in and do a lot of really fun work at a really creative time in the company. And, you know, even though I'm no longer with any of them, you know, seeing the ramifications of some work we did 5, 10, 15 years ago, now kind of coming to light and having this impact on the world is extraordinary. And I feel really, you know, privileged to have been able to be a part of it. And, you know, now in venture capital, I try to do the same thing, find companies that I believe can actually have that same kind of journey. What's something controversial today that won't be tomorrow? You know, I think part of this whole startup journey is finding these things that you might believe 100 million people will use, or you can actually cause this behavior change that will happen that most other people don't believe. You have to remember, if you're at one of the big companies, even the Facebooks and Amazons of today, you know, let alone the NBCs or New York Times, you know, they think the world works a certain way, and they aren't always thinking about what's next. But it is this sort of controversial, when Facebook was starting, when Twitter was starting, people won't put their information online, people won't want to broadcast where they're at, that all of a sudden just becomes normal 
normal and commonplace. And even on Snapchat, I remember people were like, well, why would you want to send a photo that disappears unless it's like a sexy private photo? And it turns out when you just send photos that go away, you actually send more pictures, you have more fun. So what I'm thinking about today a lot is now that we live in this world where we're always sharing everything all the time, what does privacy mean again? What are those things that we hold secret? What are the types of product where we can actually trust that our secrets live? And does that actually become sort of a new undercurrent of actually how we hang out and how we spend time in sort of the non-public area? And I'm starting to look for a lot of companies that are doing that. I also think this transformation of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and this idea of decentralized trust that is trust in a system and network that doesn't actually all trust each other, but they all verify each other's transactions is going to create a lot of things around privacy and anonymity and sort of lack of identity, but trust in this underlying system that will be transformative. And it right now is in the middle of a hype cycle around Bitcoin and everything. But I think we still don't understand the ramifications of what will happen when this really becomes sort of a commonplace to transact that is a lot more anonymous than kind of the world we live in now. And how do you think entrepreneurs should deal with controversy? Do you think to shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it comes up? You know, I think part of being an entrepreneur is being controversial. And controversy doesn't mean creating noise and creating situations just to provoke reaction in other people. But controversy means you're trying to believe something about the world that most other people don't believe, and you're trying to will that into existence. And so I think you should actually embrace controversy in the sense of doubts and disbelief and people ignoring you. And the only thing you can do as an entrepreneur is to get one more person every day, every hour, every minute in it to adopt your product, to adopt your new way of thinking, to adopt this system or the product that you're actually building and engaging people with. What are some of the questions that you ask people before you write them a check? So as an investor, we look a lot for why somebody is doing something. What is this thing they believe will happen in the world that a lot of people don't believe? And why now is the time to do it? So I really like to think about it as why now and why you? And then if it's working, it's why is it working a little bit that we believe it can work a lot? And with those three questions, I really am hoping somebody is able to understand the trends in the world that have gotten us here and why those trends create this opportunity for this thing that they believe should work in the world. I love to understand their personal commitment and connection that mission because so much of starting a company is pressure on you as a founder to produce something great, to recruit great people, to join you in that mission, to recruit investors to join you in the mission, to recruit users to actually engage in your product and be able to use it. And if you don't have a very personal connection to it, there's going to be so many reasons and obstacles in the way that may cause you to sort of say, this is too hard. But if you're a person like, I must believe that this will happen in the world and I really want to be the one that brings it to the world, then I believe you'll be able to fight through that. And then when, you know, somebody comes to us and they say, look, I have 1,000 users or 10,000 users or 500 customers or you know, I made $5 million last month. It doesn't matter any of the scale. We like to understand why it's working at the level that it's working. What are these people doing in their lives? What are they substituting? They used to do use some other product for something and now they use yours. And why do you think that that's going to go to a lot more people, a lot more customers over the coming years? Because we have to believe in exponential growth, not just in nice little linear, oh, we'll get a few more people. I have to believe you'll get a ton more people. Right. What are some ineffective things you see founders do? I meet a lot of great founders in the world who are really passionate about what they're doing and why they're doing it, but it's so hard. And I see a lot of people making some very simple mistakes. One is believing things are working better than they are. You see somebody using a product and you look at your dashboard and you might see numbers of engagement. I look at all that data and you really have to get to the underlying anecdotes. I sometimes like to say plural of anecdote is data, but if you don't get back to the individual anecdotes of why somebody's doing something in their lives, you might not know if it's that important to them or that perpetual. 
perpetual. And what you're looking for in any product that you're building are customers who are going to be customers of yours for a long time. Think of how long you might have subscribed to Netflix or how long you might be using Facebook or how long you might still be using an iPhone, even if you upgrade every year. Like you need to be a really long-term customer of a product to build a long-term viable business. And I see a lot of people get confused by dashboards of number of users or number of daily visits or number of sessions in a product, but they don't realize that people have not made it core and habitual to their life. So all the time we spend with founders is trying to dig through the data to see what people have made it, have already taken a product and made it so core and so fundamental to their lives that we think it'll actually spin up value from there. And you've worked alongside Reed Hoffman and Ev Williams, other really, really smart entrepreneurs. What would you say you've learned from them? You know, I've been lucky to work you know, side by side with some of these people who now you know, feel like icons of the industry. And what's amazing is I remember you know, when I was first working with them, they didn't feel that different than other people, except that they truly were able to articulate the vision they believed in. They were able to recruit a lot of great people to work with them around that great vision. I was lucky not just to work with those founders, but the amazing teams and other people that were all assembled together at time. And they were really always curious, always learning, always trying to understand understand the root cause of what was working and what we were building and what we could do next and how we could do it. And they were very heads down in the weeds of these stories of the users who were using the product and these stories of what the product could become, what it could be next. And they never stopped thinking about that. And I think, you know, it's, as I said, it's easy to look at people now who look famous and successful and go, man, it must have been so much easier for them and how'd they get there. But it's amazing to just look back and realize every day, every step, they were thinking about their products, thinking about their users, and they combine that with just enough luck to get to where they got to. What would your advice be to young people right now trying to figure out what they want to do? And the most important thing to figure out is what do you believe will happen in the world in the next 10 years that you would love to be a part of making? Because if you believe something's going to be really big, you're going to have more fun and work harder to try to make that happen every day than if you say, well, other people think this is a really good idea. I'm not that excited about it, but I'm going to go work on it because other people say it's really cool. Because every time, every great idea, every great vision has ups and downs and way downs. And if you aren't personally committed and excited to seeing that happen in the world, every time there's a down or a way down, you're going to feel like jumping off the ship. And I think so the most important thing is get your own part of what you want to believe and see will happen in the world and then try to go be a part of it, whether that's founding, whether that's joining like I did. Um, and if you pick the right trends and you pick the right mission, you can even jump from company to company like I did to LinkedIn and Facebook and, and Twitter and still come out with you know a great set of you know, outcomes and be very proud of the work you did. And if you could go back to your high school or college self, did you do anything differently? Was there something that caused you to leave LinkedIn early that maybe you said, actually, you know, if I were to go back in time, I, sh I should have known X, Y, and T, and here's what I would have done differently. Yeah, I totally should not have left LinkedIn when I did. It's a, a good lesson myself. What caused you, you know, to leave it? You know, I think the thing that I've learned, you know, as I've gotten older, is there's a really important balance in life between patience and urgency. And I think, you know, as I was younger, I was always so urgent to move faster ahead in my career, work on more meaningful things, work on something that I thought was going to move faster. And, you know, if, it, there were periods at LinkedIn, especially in the early days, where it felt like we weren't moving fast enough. It felt like I was working on HR and jobs, and I felt like that wasn't going to advance me on the things I wanted to do fast enough. And I wasn't being given 
given a director title a year into working at a company. And these were things that I just got in my own head about, like, why am I not given more responsibility? Why am I not, you know, why am I being asked to go to this conference when somebody else should go? And what I realized is if you're actually more patient about the long term and you do great work and you're part of an organization that is doing great work, like just staying there can actually really add a lot of value. Like even when I was at Facebook, I always felt like I was more urgent. Like, why am I not being asked to do more? You know, I've been in the industry for 10 years. I can do so much more. And I was so caught up in that sort of urgency about myself that I wasn't just being patient to realize, do great work and more great things will come. And, you know, I was lucky to work at companies that have now turned out to be iconic. You know, maybe if you really believe the company is flailing and not going to turn into something great, being patient isn't necessarily good advice. But I will tell you that even when I was in these situations that have turned out to be great, I was always so much more kind of stupidly urgent about what it could mean for me instead of this just realizing doing great work around great people that you're seeing have an impact on the world. There's nothing like it. And if you keep doing that and you're patient, all the rewards and spoils will come to you. I love that. And do you have any advice for finding untapped talent, diamonds in the rough? I guess going back to when you were just leaving college, you finding some of these companies very early on. And then even today as an investor, yes, part of your job is finding these diamonds in the rough. How do you do that? You know, I think it really comes back to mission commitment. I graduated from Stanford and I feel like I had a lot of advantages and was very fortunate, you know, just to be able to have that access and that on my resume certainly, you know, helped advance me, you know, in a bunch of ways, you know, it's sort of a, it's a credibility. But even so, every single job that I've gotten, with the exception of my, my role at Zazzle, which was between LinkedIn and Facebook, I went out and saw it myself. I found a way to write a cover letter to the company or find a person that I knew at the company and express, I would love to come be a part of your company because I believe this thing will be massive in the world and I want to be a part of that. And if you are trying to find a job or founding your own company and trying to find investors, that belief where you believe something will be big and you want to be a part of it or you want to make it happen is much more appealing to companies and investors than somebody who says, hey, I want a job. You look like a good company. I think I could learn a lot there. No, I like to joke, but when I'm interviewing somebody, my number one question is, why do you want to work here? And they say to me, because I think I'll learn a lot working at this company. I'm like, go to school. School is for learning. If I'm trying to hire you to our company, I want you to say, because I believe this thing will be huge in the world and I'm a good engineer or I've had a lot of fun designing products in the past and I really think I can contribute to make that happen and I'm so excited about the chance to be a part of it. That's a much better answer than I think I can learn. And so I think the way that untapped talent you know, or diamonds in the rough really can get surfaced is by finding and showing that commitment. And if, if you can't get your foot in the door, write a blog post about the company that tells you why you think they're great, but what you think they could do better or write a little project that builds on top of their platform and shows how something could work. Build a little app in the app store that finds a way to get to the top of the charts that you know shows something off about your skills if you can't get in front of other people and then you will get noticed. But the best way is to make sure it's, I believe in what this thing could be a lot bigger and I want to be a part of it. And if you were to leave Greylock today, which company would you go make that app for or write that blog post for or sector or area that excites you most right now? You know, it's a it's a different question for me, you know, at this stage of my career uh, than earlier, because I think, you know, one of the things I've had in my career is I've gotten to be part of these very early platforms that prove something in the world that could exist didn't. I mean, LinkedIn was tiny when I joined. Twitter was still a small company. Even Facebook was nothing like what it is, what it is today. There's a part of me today that says we've now created so much impact in the world from these ways that we're connecting each other that I might like to go be a part of what's the next evolution of that. 
which I think it actually happens at scale. I think companies like Apple and their focus on privacy, Amazon and their focus on a very direct customer relationship that provides value to them every day are kind of the two companies that I think is an amazing businesses that they've built. And yet they still don't connect people in the same way that things like Facebook and Google do. And so I would love to figure out how you could bring some of that knowledge together and help evolve even Amazon and Apple's product to the next level there. But I'm super happy where I am at Greylock getting to invest in the next generation. And how do you manage your, your life and time right now? Do you have any routines? morning, afternoon, or evening? You know, between work and family, life is pretty hectic. My primary routine is get up in the morning, catch up as much as I can on Twitter, spend as much time with my family before they go off to school, spend as much time during the day packed with meeting as many great entrepreneurs, founders that I can, including our own portfolio. And then back in the evenings, try to be home as much as I can with the family to then be ready to do it the next day. And how do you make hard decisions when when there are different viewpoints, whether that's investing in a company or... You know, the problem with every decision is there's never a right answer. The only thing you can do is make your best guess with all the information you have in front of you, make the decision and move forward. And so I like to do a couple things. One is worst case, best case analysis so that you understand enough of why, you know, what could happen if you do this and things go wrong or what would happen if you don't make the decision and things go wrong. People often underestimate what happens if you don't make the decision or make the, the kind of counter decision, let's not do this. There's a lot of ramifications of that as well. And then I like to think about every decision more as a hypothesis. If you remember back in middle school science, it was hypothesis, experiment, analysis, result. And you don't think of all decisions that way, but really everything in life is a decision that you are saying, I believe this will happen. If this happens, I will then have this result or this result. And then you actually can do a look back and say, based on my hypothesis, what was the actual result? And then how can I use this to inform a better decision next time? And that look back is a really important piece of decisions, probably even more important than the decision-making process itself. You must say no a lot being a venture capitalist. How often do you say no and and how do you say no? As a venture capitalist, I'm always presented with opportunities to invest in amazing founders who believe in their mission, who think they're building something great. And we can only pick a couple deals a year that we really invest in just with our model and our fund. So the reality is when I'm saying no to invest, I'm not saying no, your idea won't work. I think that's terrible. I'm saying no, I don't believe enough to make this one of the very couple that I am going to be able to invest in right now. But I really am rooting for you and I hope you do something great. And maybe there'll be a chance for me to invest you in the future. Because that's fundamentally what I believe about our ecosystem is everybody wouldn't be trying to raise money, wouldn't be trying to build a company if they didn't believe in something great. And what are some of the books that you'd recommend to college students just graduating, just starting out in their careers, books or podcasts? Two of the most informative books that I read are actually financial-based business books that just flipped my thinking to understand fundamentally how to think about companies in the long term. Because you know we think about products all the time as builders, as creatives, but we don't always think about what the fundamentals of the business are behind it. So I really like Good to Great and The Outsiders. They both are case studies of very large companies that went through very large kind of transitional periods. And what the few leaders who really separated from the pack did, both in terms of building a great company and culture, but also in terms of building a great underlying business. And it really shifted my thinking for all of our companies. It's not just about building a great product. It's building about great business that produces cash flow that can fund great initiatives and new products in the future. And if there was one thing that you could pinpoint that has contributed to your success more than anything, what would that be and why? 
Well, the first is clearly luck, but the second is this constant curiosity where I'm trying to guess what I believe the world could be in the future and trying to actually go work on that. And I would say that, you know, I never try to say, well, what do other people want to do or what do other people tell me to go work on or what's safe? It was always, what do I think could be really big and how do I go work on a company doing that? And does Josh Sheldon have a one year or a five year or a 10 year plan? I do, although it changes every day. Right now, my plan is to keep trying to find those founders who are building the next great things and try to invest and be a part of them. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hopefully it was good. It was. It was. It was great. Thanks.